we are uh, reaching the end of Revelation here, and uh, and there is uh, in this book has baffled many interpreters because uh, the book is written in symbolic language, and we would like to come da- to know exactly what each symbol represents. And you might recall that when we started our study, you know, we said that there is one approach that focuses on decoding the symbols. And then there is the approach of act of seeing the symbolic world of revelation actualized. So the tendency for many, especially in conservative circles, has been to, to focus on decoding. What exactly does this symbol represent? And here is someone who is thinking, in, I found this, I, I actually was looking up, I looked up an old lecture that a, uh, an anesthesiologist at the hospital where I worked in Norway, he was a very clever anesthesiologist and he, he had a good grasp of, of palliative care and I needed to review some things when we were taking care of my mother-in-law at home, some medical issues, so I reviewed one of the lectures he had given and he was quite entertaining and I found he had this slide as <laughs> one of his his slides, and, and this is sort of the decoding, you know, there is, uh, you see this person who is uh, going around making sure that everybody knows what is what, and, and I hope uh, my efforts here have been rewarding, that we have <laughs> decoded the book of Revelation, and you know exactly what each symbol now means. <laughs> well, you know that the book isn't like that, so, <clears throat> so uh, you know, maybe that was the wrong wrong approach to the book. So if you wish to comment on it, please do. <laughs> now, I also think, and this is also another slide I found in his uh, presentation on, on how to relieve people's pain in, in terminal care. Uh, <clears throat> there are some impediments to seeing. What is the impediment here? <laughs> I, 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 am not, I am not intending this for its political message. If if that is what you think, I, I am very mean, but that is not my intention here. I'm just saying that there are some impediments to seeing. There are certain, certain uh, ways we are conditioned in certain ways. And I like to, I want to share with you something I just read. Uh, I actually heard someone talk about this on NPR. And then I went and uh, downloaded uh, <coughs> Uh, Mark Twain's book, Huckleberry Finn, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And uh, here is one. Uh, it's, we have touched on this before, but, but uh, let's j- just say that, I, that, that this is under the headline impediments to seeing, sort of getting all mixed up because there are certain things you, you, you're conditioned a certain way. Uh, I'm, I'm accessing the story, and I, I just I wish somebody else who could read it with the right accent uh, and, and, and twang, you know, could do this. But let me try here. Uh, this is uh, uh, they are on a Mississippi River boat. In both of these books, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, they are both on the Mississippi River boat, right? I mean, you know, you're Americana here. You should. Uh, is that okay? And then uh, and then. Um, 
Huck Finn, he is in the company of a liberated slave who has eloped, someone who has run away, a runaway slave. And he has some compunctions about his participation in helping this person run away. And he is discussing that this with himself in, in what I will be reading. And this, <coughs> this, I'm starting here then, I think this is in chapter 7 in the book. Once I said to myself, it would be a thousand times better for Jim to be a slave at home where his family was, as long as he'd got to be a slave, since that was the only option. So if that's what he had to be, then it would be better for him to be there. And so I'd better write a letter to Tom Sawyer and tell him to tell Miss Watson where he was. But I soon, but I soon give up that notion for two things. She'd be mad and disgusted at his rascality and ungratefulness for leaving her, and so she'd sell him straight down the river again. And if she didn't, everybody naturally despises an ungrateful nigger, and they'd make Jim feel it all the time, and so he'd feel ornery and disgraced. And then think of me. It would get all around that Hug Finn helped a nigger to get his freedom. And if I was ever to see anyone from that town again, I'd be ready to get down and lick his boots for shame. That's just the way. A person does a, a low-down thing, and then he don't want to take no consequences of it. Things as long as he can hide, it ain't no disgrace. That was my fix exactly. The more I studied about this, the more my conscience went to grinding me. The more... And the more wicked and low-down and ornery I got to feeling. And at last, when it hit me all of a sudden that there was the plain hand of providence slapping me in the face and letting me know my wickedness was being watched all the time from up there in heaven, whilst I was stealing a poor old woman's nigger that hadn't even done me no harm and now was showing me there's one that's always on the lookout, and ain't a going to allow such no such miserable doings to go only just so far and no further. I most dropped in my tracks, and I was so scared. So he has pangs of conscience for helping this person escape, for sort of doing this, uh, this mean trick to this poor old woman who had owned a slave. That's his, his uh, predicament. Well, I tried the best I could to kinder soften it up somehow for myself by saying, I was brung up wicked, you know, sinful nature, and so I weren't oh, much to blame. But something inside me kept saying, there was the Sunday school. You could have gone to it, and if you'd, if you'd have done it, they'd learnt you there that people that act as I've been acting about that nigger goes to everlasting fire. It made me shiver. And I about made up my mind to pray and see if I could, couldn't try to quit being the kind of boy I was and be better. So I kneeled down. But the words wouldn't come. Why wouldn't they? It weren't no use to try to and hide from it from him. Not from me, neither. I knowed very well why they wouldn't come, the words. It was because my heart weren't right. It was because I weren't square. It was because I was playing double. I was letting on to give up sin. But the way inside of me, I was holding on to the biggest one of all. I was trying to make my mouth say I would do the right thing and the clean thing. 
and go and write to that nigger's owner and tell where he was. But deep down in me, I know it was a lie, and he knowed it. You can't pray a lie. I found that out. So I was full of trouble, full as I could be, and didn't know what to do. At last I had an idea, and I says, I'll go and write the letter, and then see if I can pray. Why, it was astonishing, the way I felt as light as a feather right straight off, and all my troubles all gone. So I got a piece of paper and a pencil, all glad and excited, and sat down and wrote, Miss Watson, you run away, you run away nigger Jim is right down here two mile, down, down, two mile below Pikesville. And Mr. Phelps has got him, and he will give him up for the reward if you send. I felt good, and all washed clean of sin, for the first time I had ever felt so in my life. And I knowed I could pray now. But I didn't do it straight off, but laid the paper down and sat, sat there thinking, thinking how good it was all this happened so, and how near I come to being lost and going to hell. And I went on thinking. And I got to thinking over our trip down the river, and I see Jim before me all the time, in the day and in the night time, sometimes moonlight, sometimes storms, uh, and we are floating along, talking and singing and laughing. But somehow I couldn't seem to strike no places to harden me against him, the only, the on, but only the other thing. I'd see him standing my watch, I'd seen him standing my watch on top of his and his own. He, they took watch they, you know, at night and he took, did double duty. That's what he's saying. Instead of calling me so I could go on sleeping. And I see him how glad he was when I come back out of the fog. And when I come uh, to him again in the swamp, up there where the feud was and such like times, and would always call me honey and pet me and do everything he could think of for me, and how good he always was. And at last, I struck the time I saved him by telling the men we had smallpox aboard. And he was so grateful, he saved him by lying about, you know, smallpox. Uh, and, I, and he was so grateful and said, I was the best friend old Jim ever had in the world, and the only one he's got now. And then I happened to look around and see that paper. It was a close place. I took it up and held it in my hand. I was a trembling because I'd got to decide forever betwixt two things, and I knowed it. I studied a minute, sort of holding my breath, and then says to myself, all right then, I'll go to hell, and tore it up. It was awful thoughts and awful words, but they were said. And I let them stay said, and never thought no more about reforming. I shoved the whole thing out of my head and said I would take up wickedness again, which was in my line, and being, being brung up to it, and the other weren't. And for starter, I would go to work and steal Jim out of slavery again. And if I could think up anything worse, I would do that too, because as long as I was in, and in for good, I might as well go the whole hog. <laughs> so what's the point? There are some impediments to seeing. Just like we talked in the Nietzsche story. There is some person here who has done something wrong, 
he has helped someone get his freedom from slavery. And he thinks that for that sin he will go to hell because that's what they are teaching. And so he has to make a decision about what he intuitively thinks is right and what he has been taught is right and the consequences of that. And I will say again and again when we do theology, we face huge impediments to seeing because we have been conditioned a certain way. I'm saying that impediments to seeing affect all of, affect all of us to varying degrees. That's, that's, that is, and, and this is quite an amazing story. I think it is off the same page as, this, as the discussion we had about Nietzsche a few weeks ago. Now, Brad sent me some statements. I, I excerpted a few of the texts that you sent me because we ended up two weeks ago talking about the healing of the nations and the perspective on the healing of the nations. And then there is a whole array of texts in the Old Testament where there is, you know, where, where the healing of the nations is attempted but not accomplished. It just comes to grief, the project of healing the nations. And you see it affects Israel, it affects Israel's enemies. And there is all this language of healing, all these efforts at healing. And then uh, the report that, that it wasn't uh, successful. So keeping that in perspective too makes the text in Revelation 22 that there is healing for the nations ultimately. That puts it, uh, drives home the point even more, even more poignantly, I think we, we can see. So, so uh, please review these texts and, and others like it because there is a, this is a quite a, a, a striking emphasis in the, in the Old Testament. Let me just uh, comment then on, on those texts before we move on into what we will call the epilogue in Revelation. That talking about God, talking about theology in a, in a healing framework, uh, could be, we could say it like this, that the language of healing is not inferior. It is not second-class terminology for talking about God and what God is up to in the world. Now, it is not the language that dominates theological discourse. Theological discourse has, has adopted another framework that has been it's sort of been the, the sort of go-to place. And, and if you want to prove your valor as a theologian, you need to have mastery of that other terminology. But as we have seen here, and as we see in the book of Revelation, the terminology of healing, the language of healing, is prioritized. It is the preferred terminology in some ways. Uh, okay, so let's just say that the la this language is not the inferior language. Specifically, giving preference to the language of healing might be the remedy for the most negative consequences of theology that is one-sidedly welded to legal terminology. And I'm thinking especially on the, on the, the sort of gung-ho-ness that there has been in that framework for, for punitive action and, 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 and just, just uh, visions of punitive actions that defeats any notion of healing. That just seems, seems to me be that there is some competition there between these two, two uh, frameworks and those who are attracted to, to a framework of healing should not feel that that is outside the realm of the Bible. The Bible is, 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 is quite fond of that language, and is, is in the book of Revelation, as we see, that is sort of the end point, the end 
end of the story is a vision of healing. So, uh, yes, Revelation revels in the language of healing. Well, enough said about that. Let's do the epilogue. And if one of you would read Revelation 22, 6, um, and then we will move through the rest of the, of the chapter. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, for the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And I think we have can read verse 7 at the same time. See, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So what you see here, there is an emphasis on the one hand, there is, there is the foundation, that is the God's trustworthiness, uh, which we have seen again and again emphasized. We have called it the faithfulness of God or the trustworthiness of God. That's kind of the, the that's what, what has been at stake. And, and then uh, this messenger or, or our, our companion uh, who gives this di- guided tour in the end, says these words are trustworthy and true. And then there is a response to that, and that what is the response? Well, the sp- response is to, to keep the words, to, be, to trust it, to rely on it, and to, to, to make that, uh, that part of one's, one's uh, uh, faith journey. So which is more important, trustworthiness or trust? Well, they are, you know, they are, uh, it would be unfair to, to prioritize them. But trust, trust relies on trustworthiness that has been demonstrated, that there has been a demonstration. It is not that trust hangs on nothing. It hangs on something that has been demonstrated. And that is what our story and what the New Testament or the Bible has been up to all along to demonstrate God's trustworthiness. Isn't that, I think we can say that. So here is a text on ministry of angels, verses 8 and 9. If someone else would read that. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your comrades, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Yeah. Well, what's, why, is he, what's, why, does, why do we need this, this kind of clarifier here? That seems a little unnecessary, doesn't it? Seems a little strange. I'm hard at work these days. I, I have assembled quite a, a body of literature because, because we, have, we have said before here that the view of reality that you find in the book of Revelation is that there is a divine reality, there is a human reality, and there is a non-human reality, angels. Angels, good and bad. Angels, unfallen and fallen angels, a non-human reality. And many, many things, the storyline in the book of Revelation is in some ways conditioned, is in some ways, in, in some huge way, influenced by the role of what happened in the non-human reality. That's, we have, we have wrestled with that. Now, again, we have a problem because in the history of the theological tradition doesn't have much to say 
the theological tradition kind of, kind of uh, deleted that non-human reality. It, had no, it has no prestige. It has no ex- explanatory power. So the theolo- theological tradition has, has centered on the divine and the human reality and tried to explain everything within, within that framework. And, and here we have a sort of just a reminder. It isn't all revisiting that topic, but, but you know, here there, is a, there are angels in the story, and it's, you know, an angel that seems to, to play a role that makes this person think, yeah, well, you know, this is almost, it's almost like God, you know, that, that, that the non-human reality is at, at the very least a very significant reality. And some of the Theologians who have been most disdainful of this reality is a person like Karl Barth, who may, I've said before here, may be the most influential uh, theologian of the 20th century, who, who is so dismissive, is so, contempt, so full of contempt for the non-human reality. So I'm trying to write a chapter for a project I'm working on where I'm going to, to try to rebuild sort of the ontologic significance, the, the, the significance of another order of being to, to understand reality, and that's the non-human reality. So anyway, just reminded of that when we see this text and an angel that, that makes him think he should, you know, that he, John should worship that person, and he says, well, don't do that. Because, because worship... Worship is, is, you know, in, in the Bible, worship operates along that line, the big sort of the, what we have called the ontologic dividing line, you know, between what? Who is above that line? God. And then everything else is below it, you know. And worship is the one thing. Who, who is to be worshipped? God only, you know. So wherever there is if there is you know worship of someone other than god it is it is uh, it is not that's the bible is sort of trying to to clarify that for us so anyway i think that's enough said about that let's read on verses 10 and 11 and he said to me do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near let the evil doer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still be right and the holy still be holy. There is an echo of the book of Daniel in this text. What's the echo? It's actually a contrast to the book of Daniel. Uh, let's do that one first. What is the contrast to the book of Daniel? The book of Daniel ends by saying, seal up the book because the time is far. It, is, it, it refers to a distant future. And here John, which in, in, which in some ways is a companion to Daniel, is saying, or is being told, do not seal up the words because the time is near. So you have a, you have a sense of forward movement in time, don't you? As a, you know, to the ex- that, that in Daniel, the, the decisive events in history are still distant, but not so in the book of Revelation. Uh, and then there is this notion that there is a, that there is a point in time where there is no more, where you pass a point of no return. Let that person who made up their mind to go that route, let that be the case. And then, so you have a sort of uh, dividing of ways here, a point in time. Uh, I think various church traditions in the Adventist tradition, 
there is this notion of the closing of the door of mercy, which is, uh, I'm not sure you want to discuss that idea, if you want to affirm it or, or if you want to uh, elaborate on it. Is there a closing of the door of mercy? Is that a good way of saying it? The door of opportunity, the closing of a window of opportunity, is that better? Because the closing of a door of mercy would seem like it is something, you know, it could, it could give the sense that this is something God does arbitrarily. Well, it's, you know, it's time to close the door, you know. So uh, the notion then of, an of a missing an opportunity could, yes. Well, that's a, that's a good analogy. We have an Old Testament text, uh, the, the Noah, the story of the ark. And it, the door closes when? At what point does the door close? When, nobody, when, no, when there are no more passengers, when no one else is coming. So it isn't arbitrary if, if that is the case. If we can use that as our analogy, then, then it isn't just, you know, well, it's too bad, you know, you, you didn't come on time. There was, it, was not, it was not a point in time. It was when a, there was a, a reality beyond which it was not meaningful to keep the door open, you might say. There is something that has, that has consolidated in human reality, and that, that cannot be overruled. There is no overruling of, of what has consolidated and settled in, in human reality. So, uh, Okay, let's go on here. Here are a couple of texts about Jesus and the divine identity. Uh, chapter, the, again, these are in many ways summary statements. Remember, we're now in, in the epilogue of the book, so you're, you're just taking up certain th thing, things that, that have been themes earlier in the text. So who will read 12 and 13? See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. To repay according to everyone's work, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So who is talking here? It's Jesus who is talking. He is the one who is coming soon. And he calls himself what? The Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. Now, if we use Old Testament, you know, use our method here, which is, you know, go to the Old Testament, see if there is an Old Testament background for this. Uh, and there surely is. Here is a, a whole array of texts in the book of Isaiah. Thus says, in 44.6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is talking? Well, God. God is talking. Isaiah 41.4, Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am he. And 48.12, Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. So what do we see here then when Jesus calls himself, I am the first, I am the last? That Jesus is placing himself within the divine identity. But the Christology of the New Testament, the Christology of the book of Revelation, is in some ways a narrated Christology. It is not Christology the way it was argued in the early church, where the early church, you know, from the days of Constantine and Nicaea and all those uh, meetings that they held, very controversial meetings, where they argued the nature of Christ 
philosophically, in a sort of substance Christology, that there was the same substance. That's, that's, that is not, it is not substance Christology, it is divine identity Christology. And Richard Bauckham, who visited our campus a few months ago, he has done wonderful work on, on, on divine identity Christology and showing how that, how that construct is developed in the Bible, uh, uh, that Jesus is narrated to the early church, to the early Christians as the person who belongs to divine identity. He can say with no qualifications, I am the first and I am the last, appropriating terminology that is exclusively belonging to God in the Old Testament. See? So that's, there, is a, there is a fascinating discussion in, in a book. Uh, uh, let me try to uh, tell it in a very short way. There was a discussion in Baghdad in the year 800 or so between the, the highest official uh, of the Christian church and, one of the, and, the, and the Muslim ruler of Baghdad at that time. It is a very amicable discussion. A, a, a discussion among people who seem to talk to each other as though they are equals. The, the, the Muslim talks very respectfully to the Christian, and the Christian speaks very respectfully to the Muslim, and they are discussing who has the truth, you know, who is really right on this, knowing as they do that Christology, you know, the role of Jesus is an area, of contested area between Islam and Christianity. And, 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 and uh, the the Christian patriarch, he is a, his name is Timothy, he is a very educated man, and they served, the Christians served at high levels of government for, the, for the, uh, the Muslims that might, to some extent, have been less educated. Uh, that is, is in, in some ways, implicit. And then, what is fascinating is, for one thing, what is fascinating is the tone of mutual respect the tone of, of genuine dialogue. What is more fascinating is that when the Christian, Timothy, tries to explain Christian Christology to the Muslim using philosophical categories, it is a discussion he's bound to lose. It is, it is I can see, trying to put myself in the Sultan's uh, uh, shoes, I can see why he cannot make head or tails out of that account. You know, the, the Christian, the way Christianity has tried to explain its Christology and the role of Christ in philosophical terms. My sympathies, my heart goes out to, to the Sultan for not <coughs> being, you know, entirely persuaded by the, Christ, the way, uh, you know, the theological tradition has done it. But Jesus in the Bible is configured as belonging to the divine identity. No philosophical, without trying to sort of explain that in philosophical terms, you get, you get the idea. This is a somewhat complicated subject. Let's run away from it. <laughs> okay, 14 and 15, and then uh, a little bit, a side glance to something contemporary. Uh, who will read uh, verse 14? Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. I think we can say that that uh, the book of Revelation is not afraid to hold out incentives to its readers. It is, it is not afraid to say that there is something at the end of the journey that is worthy, worth, worth having. And here you, I think you can see 
a bit of a tone of, of the voice of John or the gospel of John, that they may enter the city by what? By the gates. Which chapter in the gospel of John would you think about here? Chapter 10, where Jesus is the gate to the sheep. And those who want to enter, they enter by the gate. And there are others who try to enter by climbing over the wall, you know, and they are the thieves and the robbers. There is a Johannine texture to this, this verse here. Uh, so I, I hear the whisper of the Gospel of John or the same person there to have the right to the tree of life and enter the city by the gate, by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and fornicators and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Again, in a way that is quite typical of classical rhetoric, even, even classical rhetoric in, in antiquity, where you hold out incentives and you hold out disincentives, you know, why you should choose this, you know. Obviously it looks, and the rhetoric is quite, quite uh, uh, you know, the one side it is pure and, 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 and attractive and enticing, and the other side... The rhetoric is very, very, very negative. The dogs and sorcerers and fornicators. And then maybe the bottom line is the most significant. Everyone who loves and practices falsehood, which doesn't just mean telling things that aren't so in, in, in just everyday, uh, everyday relationships, but it is, it is telling falsehoods about God that is part of the of the basic story and to misrepresent God that's the, the hallmark of the other side so you see that incentive and disincentive well here is the Time magazine that, that uh, Gerald was, was mentioning and now you can, can comment on it and uh, 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 there is a, a pastor in Grand Rapids, Michigan who I had not heard of uh, till just very recently his name is Rob Bell he has quite a following. He's quite a, a, a prominent uh, preacher in the, in the evangelical community. He has a large church there in, in Grand Rapids, and he has written a book called Love Wins. And uh, Kyle uh, and I, we talked about this a few weeks ago, and surely and suddenly this book leaks, leaps to the front of, uh, to the you know, cover page of Time magazine. The book has been heard as though he is questioning the reality of hell, which has been seen to be controversial in, in the faith community where this pastor is, is uh, working. And the book has also been heard as though he is holding out the possibility of salvation for everyone. And the, the sort of pivot point in his own story is an exhibit that they had, that he was arranging an exhibit on peacemaking, and he had, a, he had Gandhi as one of the peacemakers there. And then one of the people who attended the conference said that you have to have a, do a reality check on Gandhi as a, as, a, as a role model because Gandhi is going to burn in hell. And our pastor, Rob Bell, thought, well, that is really something. You know, it's Gandhi going to burn in hell. And so he is weaving a narrative to some extent is he from that or or i have just read the second hand literature here as it were well it it puzzles me and it is it sobers me too 
you know, why is it? Because now is there, there is one, one thing that has been characteristic in the Adventist emphasis has been to say, to take the eternal punishment out of the equation. I just wonder if the way we have done it, like we've said before, we did it on quantitative terms. We said there isn't eternal punishment, but there is hell, there is retribution, there is a, a sort of a, a timed, you know, a limited punishment. Whether that was good enough to go out to the world with that, whether that is a sufficient modification of the traditional paradigm, maybe the next step would be to say that there is a qualitative difference, not just a quantitative difference, the length of punishment, that the whole way that things end is, not, is, is, is uh, somewhat different, and, and we have not, we have not uh, done that in a way that is consistent ourselves. I will just add my comments here. Whether there is a hell is indeed a question about the love of God. You know, what kind, what is God's character? You know, yes, arguments, there are arguments on other sides of that question, as, I, as, I, as we all know. But I'm just uh, wishing to, to make a distinction between two, two elements in this story. The notion that whether there is a hell is one thing, whether there is a universal salvation is not necessarily a question about the love of God. Because... There is another question here, and that is the question of freedom. And I think many, when I look at, at theologies that even origin, I want to do a session on origin here uh, in the cosmic conflict story in the early church to, to see how the early church thought about the cosmic conflict. But even origin tends toward universal salvation, even though he seems to understand freedom quite well, but not well enough. Because the notion of freedom is, if, you know, if, if um, universal salvation is only a question about the love of God and not also a question about freedom, then it would be easy. But it seems to me that the question is also about freedom. Somebody, when I went to Andrews University to give my presentation on the cosmic conflict a few months ago, uh, several people in the audience thought that I was articulating a theological tradition that is all about the love of God, which is a big misunderstanding. It isn't all about the love of God. It is, to a very significant dis degree, a discussion about freedom, about creaturely freedom, even to the point that some people might choose not to be saved, not to, not to come on board. So... Anyway, let's go on here. I will rush, rush to, through the rest of it. It is I, Jesus, who sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. What do you hear here? You hear an allusion to, an allusion to Isaiah 11, 1 to 10, the root and descendant of David. Probably the most significant prophetic text in the Old Testament. Certainly a text hugely influential on the message of Revelation here in the ending of Revelation and also in Revelation 5 where the lamb that has been slaughtered is from the root and descendant of David. Here Davidic kingship is given a cosmic scope and then Jesus calls himself the morning star. But who is the morning star in the Old Testament? 
So Jesus is in some, there is a cosmic conflict texture to that claim. I am the morning star, you know, not the other one who has sort of outplayed that role. And Jesus has in some ways, you know, is assuming that role of the angelic figure. I am the morning star. You see that contrast there? It's quite fascinating. But I'm going to not uh, 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 get to do this text here. I preached uh, some uh, meetings in Oslo in Norway some years ago, and I had a topic that I called the message of the Bible in one word. And I asked the audience to say what that word would be. Now you tell me, here in this highly educated community with biblically literate people, if you were to boil down the message of the Bible to one word, what would that word be? Reconciliation. That's a noun. (laughs) I'm just categorizing it. Reconciliation. It works. It's close. Uh, Others. It it might be right. What What else? Come, that's a verb. <laughs> the Bible likes verbs. Bible likes, but uh, anyway, any other comments? Well, you can see that I'm trying to set you up here. The spirit and the bride say, come. Then let everyone who hears say, come. And let everyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. I was proposing to the audience in Oslo that if you were to to choose just one word to get the whole, sort of, if you just had to go with one word, it would be the word, it would be the word come. <laughs> it would be a verb. It would be an invitation. Here, and and there, is, there are Old Testament antecedents for this in Isaiah 55, 1, where the text is accessing deeper, accessing deeper human needs. Isaiah 41, 17, similar text. And then this is a theme in Revelation where human need is configured as thirst. And thirst is what kind of, what kind of need? Thirst is a vegetative need. Thirst is a visceral need. You know, that kind of thing. I, to the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of water of life in Revelation 21.6. In the Samaritan woman in John 4.10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. On the last day of the festival, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. So what, is, what are we seeing here? Let me try to give you my take on it. Number one. Revelation is a book of profound theology, but the first order of business is to urge the reader to come, even if our theological world is topsy-turvy. In the book Steps to Christ, Ellen G. White says that some people wonder whether they must repent before they can come to Jesus. It would seem the logical thing to do. You repent and you come to Jesus. Ellen White says what? You come to Jesus and he will take care of the rest. You do not do anything before you come to Jesus. You come to Jesus first. With our theological worlds all messed up, whatever it is, there is still sort of, we can come to Jesus on a very primitive, uh, primitive foundation. Revelation addresses human need on a visceral level, not only on a cognitive and intellectual level. 
Revelation ends is a in, in a vision of vocation. And let everyone who hears say, come. So we were not just, we're not just invited to sit in the audience or not just invited to, to come, but we are invited to do what? To say, come. You know, to make the influence, you know, spread beyond our horizon. We are not just in, in this as, as spectators, you might say. Revelation promises access to the water of life now, in this life. Let everyone who thirsts drink now from the water of life. So that, those are some of the things. I think our time is up. So we will do the last few verses here. And I have given you a... Uh, uh, I'm hoping that you will see it as an assignment to choose the ending of Revelation that you think ought to be prioritized. The ending and the endings of the book of Revelation. And we'll do that next time. Thank you.